This is the Rational Perspective. I'm Alec Hogg. In this episode, why Elon Musk's Tesla isn't going private anytime soon. Earlier this week, Elon Musk's biggest fan in the investment world urged Tesla's founder to stop his ideas of taking the company private. Catherine Wood of ARK Invest reiterated her bullish earlier projections in an open letter on the money manager's website where she reckons the company's shares are actually worth anything from $700 to $4,000 and that you'd see that in five years' time. Musk, you may recall, threw any number of cats among Wall Street's pigeons at the beginning of this month, tweeting that he intended taking the company private at a price of $420 a share. After peaking fractionally below 380 the price has since fallen back to its current $320, below the pre-tweet level and a long way from the funding-secured share price that uh, he was talking about. But so far, those who bet against Musk have been the big winners, with disclosed short sellers of Tesla stock making over a billion dollars in profit since Musk's bombshell tweet. These cynics think Miss Wood's valuations of up to $4,000 are a figment of an alternative reality. But where they do agree with her, although for different reasons, is that it's very unlikely that Tesla will be going private anytime soon. Main reason for this is Saudi Arabia's Public Investment Fund. That organization on which Musk is pinning his buyout hopes doesn't actually have the money to help him out. And even if it wanted to pay $100 a share more than the current share price, they can't do it. Here's energy analyst Dr. Ellen Wald, president of Transversal Consulting. Now, the big question is really, does the PIF even have enough money to make this investment to take Tesla private? Wait, and- wait, wait, wait. This is important because I thought that the that this fund was massive and had endless money. Ah, well, it is massive, but they've made a lot of investments and they have a lot of their money tied up in non-liquid assets. So right now they own most of the Saudi, the national petrochemical company, Sabic. And apparently they'd like to sell that to their national oil company, Aramco, to gain more liquidity to make more investments. So the money is actually really tied up. And so they're going to have to either put more money in or they're going to have to sell some of their assets, assets to do to do this potential Tesla deal. That's fascinating. Do you have a sense of how much cash they have? How much liquid uh, money they have? Not at the moment. It's really unclear because they can always put more in, it seems, if they want. But their budget is skyrocketing, and so they're using a lot of their money to, um, you know, to to fund their government and to fund their their budget. So it's really uh, an issue of of can they do this? And there are some sources that say that that the Saudi PIF is is not necessarily all in on this Tesla deal. Dr. Wald was talking to Bloomberg's Lisa Abramovitz, and to reinforce her view, the London Financial Times reported this morning that the Saudi Public Investment Fund has lined up a consortium of global banks to lend it $11 billion, simply so that it can meet existing obligations. This is quite clearly not the white desert charger readying itself to ride to Elon's rescue. 
That's the last news that Elon Musk needs right now. Because a buyout by the Saudis seems to be the only elegant way out of some very serious legal issues that his tweet has landed him in. Professor John Coffey, head of the Center for Corporate Governance at Ivy League College Columbia's Law School, is an expert in securities regulation and white-collar crime. So what does he think Tesla's founders' legal priorities should be right now? Well, he needs to reach an agreement with his board, and he needs to reach an agreement with the SEC. And he needs very much to shrink his shareholder base. To do a going private transaction, he has to get the number of shareholders of record of Tesla below 300. Currently, they're around 1,150, so it's a 75% shrink. That's going to be hard to do. Uh, simultaneously, he can't do this transaction if the SEC is suing him. And I think what the SEC really wants from him, and which he probably should give without a fight, is some kind of an agreement about how he will make future statements about the company and this proposed right. transaction. Thus, I think the SEC is going to insist that you enter an agreement that you won't make further statements on Twitter without at least first clearing them with your general counsel right. and the board. Investors want full information. A Twitter statement, limited as it is to something like 114 letters, really can't explain the complexity. And his statement that funding was secured was an extreme overstatement, and it's partly the product of having to compress what he was saying into a tiny number of letters. Thus, I think you need to make a fuller statement and then add your social media statements afterwards. But start out with something that you disclose to the SEC, to the market generally, and in a corporate press release. So, Professor, there is a difference, of course, between best practice, which is something you've just described, and something that is uh, legally required, and something that would be against SEC rules. You've served as a member on the SEC Advisory Committee, and I'm interested, Professor, as to whether you would be telling them that actually they need to rethink disclosures on social media. Well, I think social media is useful. No one wants to keep it off of social media, but that's not inconsistent with having simultaneous statements. Make your statement on social media to that audience, but the rest of the market, not all of which goes to social media, is entitled to some disclosure that's filed with the SEC in a Form 8K, or something is put on the corporation's website where everyone knows they can go. A selective disclosure is problematic. What should the board do? And the board is made up of different principles. Let me start with the most visible member to the audience, and that is Mr. Murdoch, James Murdoch, of course, affiliated with Fox and perhaps Disney. How should a a board member like James Murdoch act and react to all of this? Well, of course, there is a committee that doesn't include him. They've appointed a committee to engage in valuing the company. And I think everyone should be focused on the need to come up with an independent investment banker and an independent law firm that helps this committee decide what the fair value of the company is. The price cannot be $420 just because Mr. Musk said that. The company has got to sit down and evaluate their current value, looking at all the current factors and looking at uh, professional help from an investment banking firm. Once they do that, they might well decide they're worth more because the premium that Musk was offering was only 20%. And frankly, most going private transactions see something like a 30% premium. John, what's the board's duty to investors right now after that interview with the New York Times? 
Well, I think right now the company has so many problems with their burn rate on cash flow that they've got to make sure they can communicate clearly that they are viable, that they are not burning money at such a negative cash flow that they can't afford to issue new debt. They already have $10 billion in debt outstanding, yeah. and, the, and the idea that you can triple that um, is something of a fantasy. Within the board, I guess there's a, it's a smaller, more focused board, and I guess it's Friends of Elon is a, is a board. Are they getting enough advice now, and how does the board uh, interact with their independent law firm? Well, they need to choose the independent law firm. They apparently have one. They really got two law firms because they got one handling the possible litigation and another dealing with the valuing the company. But uh, the committee needs both an independent investment banker and an independent law firm that will be there focused on what is the fair value of this company today, what do we need to know, and how do we negotiate with Mr. Musk? Because it is not their job to sit down and say yes to Mr. Musk. It is their job to say the fair value of this company, given all the different range of options in front of us, is at least X, and therefore we want you to improve your offer. Is this board independent of Elon Musk, John? Say that again? Is this board independent of Elon Musk? Well, I must say that they have more relationships with him over a 20-year career than any other board I can think of right away. Uh, It's kind of an incestuous relationship because people even on the committee have previously been employees of Mr. Musk at other firms. What would you do then? I mean, what would be the John Coffey action for this board? I mean, they're going through all the right things. I get that. But what is the next creative step for a board to get control of an uncontrollable founder slash CEO? Well, I think the first thing would be to establish a protocol. You will make no more statements about the company or this transaction without first having them cleared by our general counsel and by the law firm representing the independent committee. We want to make sure we don't get the obligation to fight off SEC and private lawsuits because you are too impulsive and saying things too quickly and too glibly. What will be the lasting impact on this in Silicon Valley? I mean, I know Tesla's unique, but we've had a few other entrepreneurial tech types feeling like they play with their own record book. Well, I'm afraid that that all depends on whether this is a success or a failure. This is still a to-be-resolved drama. Every day, like a kaleidoscope, this changes in terms of whether people have losses or they have gains, whether the burn rate is so high nothing mm-hmm. seems feasible, or whether the board should be seeking more than 420. Uh, this has to play yeah. out, and I think settling with the SEC so that you no longer have them uh, over your shoulder and putting a cloud on the transaction, and then uh, coming up with a value that you're comfortable with. And and that can't be just, we're going to do what Mr. Musk offers. Professor Coffey was being interviewed on Bloomberg Surveillance by Tom Keane and John Farrow. Okay, so what exactly is the U.S.'s regulator, the SEC, investigating? Here's another leading corporate governance expert, the co-director of the University of Pennsylvania's Institute of Law and Economics, Professor Jill Fish. The tweets have gotten a tremendous amount of attention. They've obviously had a huge effect on the stock price. And so I think it's absolutely expected that the SEC would want to probe into this and find out exactly what Elon Musk knew at the time that he made the statements, what his purpose was in making the statements, and what exactly he meant by those key words, funding secured. 
Based on your experience, if you were called in to offer legal counsel, what would you say to members of the Tesla board? Um, I guess I would want to have an understanding of the situation. It's really, I think, a very rapidly evolving situation. Uh, We, as the public, aren't sure at this point exactly what the status of the deal is, what the status of the negotiations are. Uh, we learned, I learned last night that uh, Goldman and Silver Lake were involved in this. So my first step would be to find out what's going on, um, how far along things are, and what the status of the various players are. One thing that I'm struggling to understand is how long an investigation like this would go on by the SEC and what the potential consequences are. Can you shed some light there? Well, it's very hard to predict because we really don't know what the SEC is going to find. I think the SEC's first priority is to make sure that the public, that the capital markets have accurate information. And so I think the purpose initially is to clarify the situation, to find out whether any sort of corrective disclosures are necessary, and to move very quickly on that. I think at this stage, it's much too early to try to understand, are they going to bring an enforcement action? Is there a possibility of some sort of sanctions and so forth? We just don't know. So if that's the case, and I'm trying to understand, you know, when I talk to investors in Tesla, analysts, they say, well, there is this SEC risk. How big of a risk is it if the investigation might take a very long time and might just result in sort of a hand slap of a fine? I think in terms of Affecting whether Tesla goes private, the SEC investigation is a limited risk. I think it could upset the apple cart, so to speak, but I don't think that the SEC investigation would prevent the company from going private. I think with respect to Elon Musk's personal situation, a lot of that is going to depend on these unknowns, on what his intent was, whether there was some sort of purpose to deal with short sellers and manipulate the market, or whether he just uh, got ahead of himself in the SEC's view. Professor Fish, is it legal for the CEO of a publicly traded company who also owns nearly 20% of a company's stock to put out a specific stock price for a take-private deal unless they have a committed and or some kind of documented evidence that such a conversation or negotiation is taking place? Um, Well, you put it very bluntly. And that's kind of a hard statement, right? Um, I think there are a bunch of questions that I would ask or that the SEC would ask in terms of determining legality. But I think the way the tweet was framed in terms of his intention or his goal at a specific stock price, I don't think that's necessarily problematic. One of the things that we've seen with Elon Musk's tweets, and it goes back before this specific incident, is he's sort of pushing the envelope. He's using Twitter to communicate information more rapidly uh, in something in a, in a style that's really unconventional compared to your typical CEO. But I don't think that's something that's necessarily illegal. And frankly, I think it's something the markets may have to adjust to as information becomes more time sensitive, as we start to see greater use of social media and so forth. So Professor Fish is a little out on a limb here thinking that the world will have to adjust to the likes of Elon Musk rather than the other way around. Tesla's founder is sure to like that little bit of news. She was talking to Pim Fox and Lisa Bromovitz on the Bloomberg PL podcast. But not every legal expert sees it that way. Here's another law professor, this time Charles Whitehead of Cornell. 
So there are a number of things on the securities, the capital market side, uh, uh, not just private litigation, but an SEC investigation. And the uncertainty around that is one of the reasons why I suspect you see this depressed stock price. Uh, you also have real questions about the board of directors. And one of the questions that potentially will come up is whether or not the board was properly overseeing the management of the company, not just based upon the tweet, but more generally based upon the more recent New York Times uh, interview with, uh, with Elon Musk, where he talks about just how overextended he is. I, I think a board particularly when you're dealing with such a charismatic founder as, as Mr. Musk, presumably is, a, is aware of the fact that he's overextended. And you hear about, you know, three or four days in a, in a factory and not seeing sunlight. And you ask yourself whether or not the board was properly exercising their oversight function and permitting something like this from happening, uh, uh, to, to happen and, and not stepping in to try to help uh, write the, uh, the management structure. So I, I can't pinpoint any one area because I think there are a whole range of issues. But if you were to ask me to... So it's drawn one. It probably is on the security side, the SEC litigation, a potential litigation, as well as uh, the, the private lawsuits. It really does go to this question of what do we mean by secured funding. Um, you know, word to the wise, if you're going to announce go- a going private transaction, don't do it by Twitter. You tend to have a lot more of a, a focused analysis of what we mean, what we actually want to describe uh, in terms of things like secured funding. But as Holly referenced, I mean, an MBO is a complicated transaction. It's got all sorts of conflicts. And so to announce it in, you know, a, a limited disclosure without a lot of background to it is, is a real problem. So uh, on, the, on the security side, the short sellers clearly have an issue, and uh, they're going to argue that this is done as a way to prop up the price using, again, material, uh, materially inaccurate information. Uh, the shareholders more generally, uh, people that may have um, uh, transacted in securities during the same period may also see it. Forget short sellers, just people that decided to go ahead and uh, in a seller buy stock, depending on which side they were, and depending upon when it happened vis-a-vis the tweet, may also have claims against uh, the company. Fascinating stuff. On his show, The Cable, Bloomberg's Jonathan Farrow pulled in some senior colleagues, Cameron Kreese and Damien Sazawa, to discuss the whole Tesla story, starting with Musk's newest fight with sleep activist and HuffPo founder Ariana Huffington. Let's eavesdrop. What would a show be at the moment, Cameron, without talking about Tesla? Um, the chief executive officer taking on digital media mogul Ariana Huffington over the weekend, who urged him to take some time off. And then he wrote back on Twitter at 2.30 a.m. <laughs> saying, I mean, honestly, saying the following. Ford and Tesla are the only two American car companies to avoid bankruptcy. I just got home from the factory. You think this is an option. It is not. Um, talking about bankruptcy is probably not the way the board want him to go um, well, that, in his that, conversations at 2.30. That horse bolted in April 1st, right? When the, with, his little, uh, with his little joke. Yeah. You remember? He's um, joked about it before. So my question, I mean, I don't care what Ariana Huffington thinks. Neither do I. Um, my question is, what exactly is Mr. Musk supposedly doing at the factory, say, at 1 o'clock? <laughs> In the morning, he's is securing he, you know, funding. Yeah. Is he is he doing a paint job in the tent? Is he screwing on uh, one of I the one of the know. one of the touch screens? I mean, mate, learn to delegate. Yeah, I've spoke to Chris Reiter, who runs our coverage of autos in Europe, knows most of the CEOs. I asked him, does anyone leave the factory floor at two thirty? He said the only person that was anywhere close to doing anything like the working week of what we would expect. Elon Musk is apparently doing was Sergio Marchioni and he wasn't doing that I asked um, Mr. David Welch who runs our auto coverage 
out of Detroit. Whether anyone in Detroit is doing the same thing. Is Mary Barra doing that? Is uh, Mr. Hackett doing that? Guess what? No, they're not. So what's he talking about? I mean... Listen, I mean, the guy's done more than the three of us have. So. Oh, with that, you know, <laughs> every, so with conversa- that, with that, every conversation we have when we talk about other people, that's kind of like well, the yeah, unsaid yeah, thing, Cameron. Speak for yourself, pal. Speak for yourself. Um, but uh, it's important to recognize that the skill set required to, in a sense, bring a new product to market is not necessarily the same skill set that's required to run a profitable business. Right? Yeah. Uh, Musk has shown that he is able to get new products to market, but he's also shown that he can't run a profitable business, and he's not terribly unique in that regard. There was a uh, – I read a, a piece, and I can't remember who wrote it overnight, someone going through the history of the auto industry and how Henry Ford, uh, obviously a, a visionary um, of the auto industry, the only reason that Ford was profitable was because he had these other guys basically running the business for him. Yeah. Uh, and Musk doesn't have that. Musk, for better or for worse, is like – you know, Steve Jobs or a Bill Gates in the early days of, of, of Microsoft. He's a sort of totemic figurehead. No, I mean, Cameron, that's a great point. I mean, who else is going to run this company better than he right now? I mean, well, I, I anyone think... with any ability to run a manufacturing business? I don't know about that. I mean, I look. I mean, again, to your point, you know, I mean, he's a little bit, he's a little bit of an eccentric, and and but he's, I mean, it just, it just takes me. I mean, look, at the end of the day, you leave me on a deserted island, and you look for the guy with the biggest bat, and when T Row and Fidelity are, you know, reducing their positions in in Tesla, that's something that I I take note of. But um, but yeah, I mean, I'd be hard pressed for anyone to find somebody who can really run the company better than he at this point, or maybe. Uh, I... I don't know. I couldn't disagree more because he has not got experience of, of, of running a, a complex manufacturing process, which we, you know, that emerged a year ago when he talked about, well, I guess the, all, all robots was, a, was a kind of a bad idea. Now, if your argument is could anyone make the company's market cap as high as his, that's a separate question, ah. right? And I would argue he is uniquely positioned to maintain a high market cap, but then again, he's also uniquely positioned to benefit from a high market cap via the escalators he has. You yeah, remember that sure. sexy contract he signed with two and a half me, billion let, dollars let worth of options. Let me ask you this growth. question, though. There has been key man risk at Tesla for a while that if Elon Musk stepped down, many people would have considered that stock negative. Are we at an inflection point whereby if the board replaced Elon Musk that actually this could be Tesla positive? Well, it's, it's, that's a very good question. Uh, I think on balance... Probably not yet, but we're probably approaching that level. Uh, and that's a function not only of news flow, but also of price, yeah. obviously. It's a lot easier to make that call if the stock goes to 100 than if it sticks on a, on a, on a three-handle. I also think the attitude of institutional investors will be different from that of retail. Because yeah. retail, retail investors in Tesla, judging from social media, are essentially a cult. Yeah. Um, I don't think there's any other way to describe it. Whereas the institutional guys, at the end of the day, well, they want to they see the company make money. Sama, I mean, Saudi Arabia. I mean, look, I mean, that's the thing. He has managed to take some of the largest institutional pools of, 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 of wealth out there and convince them that his vision is, is something to be, to be invested in. That's true, Damien. Just to wrap up, final question to you, Damien. You've covered many, many credits um, in a lot crazier situations than I imagine that Tesla is in right now, believe it or not, yeah. um, in emerging markets. Are we at the point where the board needs to step in and do something? Uh, for Tesla, you mean, yeah? Yes. I mean, I do. I think they – look, they have to show that they have – that there is some sort of corporate governance there, right? I mean, absolutely, they have to show that, you know, they, that, that this is a real company, publicly owned, shareholders have rights, all that good stuff. But, um, 
you know, I think you're right in the, in, in the same vein that this is a cult following and, you know, people are invested in Elon Musk more so than they're invested in Tesla. But you'd have to say the board shouldn't be part of the cult following, Cameron. Well, yeah, but that would help if there weren't people on the board whose last name was Musk and whose first name wasn't Elon, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? So it's not exactly, yes, there are independent directors, but there is also some, shall we say, somewhat less independent directors. Yes. Noted. Yes, indeed. Don't you just love it when well-informed journalists relax and start sharing their backstories? The obvious conclusion from all of this, Elon Musk's troubles seem to have only just begun. And they're certainly not going away anytime soon. This has been The Rational Perspective. Until the next time, cheerio.